Canucks Central Thursday. It's Dan Richo and Satyar Shah here in the Kintech studio. Kintech Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider, supported by over 2,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. Yes, Dan Richo and Satyar Shah with you. Game three of the Stanley Cup final coming up a little bit later on tonight as the Florida Panthers try to avoid getting on the brink of elimination in this Stanley uh, Cup final. There you go. There you go, Dan. Brink and stave. Two words. Just, uh, yes. <laughs> Just had to do it. Just Brink, had to do it. At this rate, it'll be on your epitaph. Yes. <laughs> this could be the penultimate game of the Stanley <laughs> Cup finals. This could be the penultimate game of the... 23, 22, 23 NHL season, but uh, enough of the jokes, 650, 650, uh, bad jokes. Of course, 650, 650 on the Dunbar lumber text message inbox. That's where you can get in touch with us on the show. We've got lots to come. Scott Billick is going to join us. We'll talk Winnipeg jets and the impending trade of Pierre-Luc Dubois, or at least it feels that way. And uh, also Harmon Dial will join us uh, after four o'clock. The jets going to blow it up. Sat. Trading everybody. You think so? I mean, I don't think they're going to rebuild. That's not a rebuild organization. We'll talk to Scott, but it's like yeah. retool. It's probably a lot of hockey trades, right? How do you retool when basically half of your core or most of your core, 75% of your core is basically saying, we don't want to play here anymore? Because you need to sell tickets and uh, you can't. <laughs> you're you're imploring your fans to show up and be supportive of the team so they don't uh, dare move it again out of the market. Uh, I think they're trying to fill the building with a, with as many fans as possible every game. So yeah, th- I think that's a big motivating factor. We'll talk to Scott coming up in a bit, but yeah. th- I think yes, they're going to make a lot of trades, but I don't think they're looking to just like dump a bunch of guys and then head into a rebuild. It's also uh, can you like what teams are realistically wanting to trade for a Mark Shifley or Pierre Luc Dubois? Uh, especially if it isn't Montreal, who's the only team likely to sign uh, Pierre-Luc Dubois to a long-term extension. Like, what, which one of these teams is offering you hockey deals or something tangible in return, you know, rather than just the futures package? So I think that's a really important question to ask in that discussion as well. We'll talk to, uh, to Scott about that. But um, there's a lot of thoughts there on the Winnipeg Jets, and they are certainly a team to watch in the next couple of weeks because there is going to start to be a lot of movement in the next couple of weeks as we get into the lead up to the draft. And you know what, if the Vegas golden Knights sweep away, the Stanley cup final, the off season is going to come fast and furious in the next week. So what are teams looking for and what are the Canucks looking for? How do you go about building a team that is a true contender? Those are evergreen questions here that we have on this show and around the Canucks who have consistently made the wrong choices with their quest to build a contender after the 2011 season. And one of the themes is they just don't have enough of the premium, premium positions in the National Hockey League set. And those are the toughest things to find. They're the toughest things to acquire. They cost the most when you try to get them in free agency or wherever else. And that's why we want to go through and sort of, I don't know if it's a power ranking, but list the positions, the player types that are the most scarce in the National Hockey League. Yeah, and I I think... 
it comes it's, it's funny because we speak so much about having forwards and centermen and franchise players are built around up front and all that and of course right i mean it's absolutely a huge necessity but are they is a center the number one most scarce asset in the nhl because i don't think it is i think the first one and perhaps even the second one is both on the back end are both on the back end so i guess it it, it um it kind of depends how you want to phrase it. And we may differ a little bit on this, but how many true number one franchise centermen are there in the National Hockey League? And the position you are speaking about, I believe, is the right shot defenseman. Mm-hmm. So the Canucks have a franchise defenseman plays on the left side. It is a little bit easier to find that guy than it is to find the right shot defenseman, the Alex Pietrangelo, the Kale McCarr, that type of player that helps you get over the top at a position that is incredibly scarce. Like, is it the true number one center or is it the right shot defenseman, the true number one top end right shot D man that is the most scarce in the NHL? Like, look at it this way. Centermen, in terms of actual fran- – like, yeah, if you're looking at it in terms of the superstar players, they're always going to be number one, right? You always say, hey, yeah. having McDavid's number one, having McCarr's, like, number one. I mean, th- that kind of puts it into a different category. But if you go by position and player types outside of those types of players, I mean, you can find upwards of 70, 80 centers in the National Hockey League that are going to score at least 40 points for you. You know, and then you okay. have other guys just below. Actually, there are eighty-three. Cent- there were eighty-three centers in the National Hockey League this past year who had at least forty points. You know, so hey, there, there's something there, right? You look at righty defensemen. There are so few of them in the National Hockey League. Like you <laughs> so go few through good it. Ones. Oh, oh, I mean, the actual actual good righty defensemen. There's like thirty, thirty-two. Yeah. Actually, good thirty-two in the entire league. At a position where, you know, 32 teams and ideally every team would ice or be able to ice three right shot defensemen every single night. But we know most teams don't ice three right shot defensemen. They'll choose to play a lefty on the right side or whatever it may be. But when you put it into that context of... There's about 30 guys in the league that are good playing this position. Like actually, actually good. Capital G good. Like top four defensemen good. And some of them aren't that good and are still getting paid in that way because it's so hard to find them. Precisely. Like an Eric Branson last year. Like what the Canucks did with Tyler Myers a number of years ago. Like are those guys great? Are they with a bullet top four defensemen? Absolutely not. But... Right shot defensemen, there's not a ton of them, so they are going to be overpaid and overvalued when it comes to free agent periods. Yeah, that's just the reality. And there's so few of them that are actually good and, and, and available in the National Hockey League. So I'd say the righty defenseman is the scarcest asset. It's hard to find righty right-handed players to begin with. We'll get to right-handed centermen. That's also going to be on the list. We'll get to that coming up in a few minutes. But number two for me is still on the back end, and that's actually truly good defensive defensemen. There's a lot of sticker shock watching... The Ivan Provorov return, a first-round pick and a second-round pick that Columbus gave up to acquire Provorov, and a, a hugely distressed asset, obviously, right? And we were all kind of surprised, you know, they got that that much for him. But one thing he's good at is 
being good defensively. He's a smart player. He skates well, moves the puck decently. For a guy who can do those things, th- that that's a rare skill set. So despite everything going on with Provorov, because of how rare it is to find defensemen that are actually good defensively, they can do the things he can do, the price was still a first and a second. Uh, yeah, as much as he is, like if he wasn't a distressed asset, what would he be worth? Well, the, the answer is he wouldn't be traded. No, he wouldn't. he wouldn't. He wouldn't be available. He wouldn't. And I mean, we, we spoke about it and there's a good discussion to be had about what's harder to find, you know, that type of player on the left side or any type of defenseman, like say a Provorov or a Heronic type. Now, Heronic last year played really well defensively. And if he can build on that and still be good defensively and he's a righty and produce some offense, like you're talking about, it, well, the Canucks haven't had a good player like that in a long time. And if he's that guy, actually good defensively, now you're start talking about the Canucks having one of the most scarce assets in the NHL. That becomes a huge boon for that organization. So we'll see, you know, how he plays and how his game comes along. But really, it's, it's essentially the entire argument for why the Canucks made the trade when they did. Precisely, like these these players do not come available often. Detroit's willing to take this package right now. We don't know how else or where else we would be able to find this player type. So let's just go out and do this now and worry about the rest later. Same argument that was made for Provorov. Yeah. You know, acquire him. Now, you see with a lot of centers, there are a lot of centers with big contracts. Teams don't touch. You know, they're just like, hey, we're not going to touch these guys. They're making too much money. There's so many Ryan Johansson's, Logan Contour type players, right? You know, Matt Duchesne. They're making a lot of money. There, there are a few guys like that on the back end. Like there is... Um, you know, there are guys like Colton Pareko, for instance, who have struggled and all that. Yep. But legitimately speaking, you still are willing to give those guys a chance for the most part. Like teams are so willing to trade those guys and take those contracts on. So this is, you know, the, to, to stick on the defenseman, you know, when you, when we talk about this with the draft so often, best player available, what does your team need? How does that conversation work out at the draft table between teams? The honest answer is best player available is it's not a pipe dream, but it's not always realistic uh, because best player available. If you're just judging it based on talent, sure. I guess you can have these arguments about the winger versus the right shot defenseman, but if it's close, if it's a tie break, What's going to happen? Teams are going to take the right shot defenseman. And we see in this year's draft with guys like uh, Reinbacher and how he shot up draft boards and looks like a lock to be a top 10 guy. Palika is going to be drafted in that middle of the first round at the latest. We keep hearing Tom Wallinder's name Mm -hmm. keep moving up and up and up after you've mentioned him a couple of weeks ago. Even Dragasevich, it's like, I see his warts as a player. Like, I see that the skating is an issue. His gap control isn't great. You know, all these things. It's just like, well, he's probably still going to be a first round pick. Yeah, precisely. (laughs) Because he's he's a right shot defenseman, has some good size. We'll figure out how to work with his skating, and we'll go from there. But we just, we can't find this player anywhere else, so we have to draft them. Yeah, you do, right? And you have to, if if the guy's there, and you also have to look at the valuation of the grade you give different players, right? Like, when you look at the value a player brings, his position plays into that calculus, or at least it does, it should play into it, right? Like, yeah. If you're trying to evaluate two players, let's say there's a guy whose skill set is a number, is a seven in terms of skills, and he plays left wing. And you have a player on the back end who's a 6.75, let's say, on the skill set, but he plays righty defenseman. What's more valuable? What would you rather? Defenseman. What would you rather take a chance on? So even if the player's slightly worse, 
because of the scarcity of the position and of the value of that player hits, you're still probably likely taking that player above that winger. So I still think it comes into the calculus. So when we say, you know, the, the tiebreaker, I think the tiebreaker is obvious, but I think oftentimes a defenseman, a righty D-man, will be valued better, valued higher, even than a player that might be slightly more skilled. And, you know, when it comes to defensive defensemen, which you say is, and you listed it as, in your eyes, the second most scarce thing to find in the league. We all talk up Jakob Slavin and, hey, this is the best defensive defenseman in the game and he should get more love in Norris conversations, but he never will because he doesn't score enough points. You know, that used to be the conversation around Mark Edward Vlasic Mm -hmm. in San Jose for a lot of years. Uh, Jared Spurgeon has long been somebody that even despite his size, a lot of people have looked at him and been like, you know, he is one of the better defensive defensemen in the game. Jonas Brodin, Mm -hmm. Minnesota's got a couple of those guys that play it really well. When Mikhail Samuelson was signed by the Buffalo Sabres to that long-term deal, I looked at it and I was like, really? Like we're doing this for, for Mikhail Samuelson. And you made the point even back then sat like, well, if he's the defensive defenseman that he's shown to be and continues to grow mm-hmm. in that area, like where else is Buffalo getting this guy? They're not, you're not finding them. You're just not, you know? And I think locking that guy in and taking that gamble is worth the price. Because if he is the player you think he is, and then that becomes, you know, it, it really shines through, you just not find that player anywhere else. You know, it, it's so hard to find because if you start going through, you know, actually good defensive defensemen, I mean, that list does does kind of rival the list of just in general top four righty defensemen. Like it is pretty close. And we've had some really good discussions with Shane Malloy and others and, you know, even Ken Danico about how the game is changing, how defending is becoming a lot harder. And it's, it's a rare to find the good defenders because the game is changing so much in terms of how players come up through the ranks. And we see it with details that we talk about so much in Vancouver. There, there, I don't think there's a market that has spoken about the value of making good defensive plays and reads more than Vancouver because they've been so poor at it for years. And the whole structure discussion has been raging on in Vancouver for a good part of a year now, obviously. So I think all those kind of factors come into us understanding why these things are so important. But you start looking through the league and starting to look to find these guys, they're so hard to find, you know? And and I wondered about the Provorov thing. I started ranking Provorov compared to other guys that are good defensively. And it's like, yeah, he's in the top half of that list. And yeah. all of a sudden, it's like, well, he's the top half of the league defensive defenseman. Even if he's distressed and has all the baggage with him, you're still talking yeah. about giving up value to acquire him. Yeah, and you know what? Like, just to use, to, to continue on that example, is, is Columbus really looking for a dynamic offensive defenseman. You know, they got Matejchuk in the system. They they drafted Juracek last year as well. They have Zach Wierenski. So that's already a team that's just robust at the back end. Mm-hmm. And they're not going to ask Ivan Provorov, you know, to be the be-all and end-all for that team in the same way that Philadelphia did because of what else they have on defense. It, you think about defensive defensemen, and they're so hard to quantify this you know, in this day and age, there's so much offense in the game. There are defensemen that score 50 points in a year and are getting paid 9 million bucks. But as the playoffs showed us, you know, Darnell nurse can leave a lot to be desired when he's playing in his own end. Uh, And he's not the only one, you know, Seth Jones got that big contract and has really struggled since getting it with the Chicago Blackhawks it's tough to find defensive defensemen. It's tough to find guys that play well at both ends. You know, we, when we, 
think about Chris Tanev, you know, he's like this mythical figure to Canucks fans because he was as good as there is defensively in the league, but he was just so hard to keep on the ice. And after one great year in Calgary, where he stayed healthy magically, he's yeah. also had that same trouble that he had in Vancouver. And it just leaves such a huge hole because you can't replace that guy. You can call up as many guys as you want from the AHL or wherever else. You may have top prospects in hand, but they just don't play that same style of game. Yeah, no, they they just don't, and it's and it's so hard to find those guys, and and via the draft, of course, it's a hard projection to make. So I think it's going to be fascinating to see how guys get drafted this year. But in terms of of acquire, acquiring players for Vancouver, outside of you know finding a diamond in a rough somewhere and making some sort of incredible trade, you know, and finding a young player that they project, and all of a sudden it, it hits, it's going to have to be um some sort of a trade one way or another. You know, that's just the uh, reality, it seems like, for Vancouver to, to solve its... Now, long-term, maybe it's one of the guys they draft that could, they come up. But if you're looking for that, you know, the type of defensive D they need, that you mm-hmm. kind of... If you all of a sudden you put that guy along, Horonic and Hughes, now you're kind of onto something, it looks like you're going to have to acquire that via trade. So the other areas, we've listed right-shot defensemen, defensive defensemen as the two scarcest positions to find the two scarcest player types to find in the national hockey league beyond that it's got to be centerman and is it two-way center finding guys that can score a little bit but also defend really well take some of those yeah. matchup minutes away from your top gun you know your austin matthews or your elias Pettersson. we know the canucks have had trouble finding this And even to add another layer to that, to stick with the handedness conversation, a right shot centerman that can do those things is an incredibly scarce commodity in the National Hockey League. So uh, I went through the list of centers, right-handed centermen that can win face-offs, right? And and I put the bar at 50%. Right-handed centermen, regular right-hand centermen in the National Hockey League that were at least That win more face-offs than they lose. Yes, or at least at 50% or break even. Break even. Like at 50%. 32. No, sorry. Sorry, what? 31. 31. (laughs) And and the list is a bit longer, but I'm taking out guys like Colin Blackwell, who took 36. I'm taking out Lane Peterson, who took 150 and only played 27 games, right? Take those guys out. Now, it was about 31. You add one of those two. Let's say you want to give one of those guys a chance. Sure. There's a couple more, right? But there were a bunch that took five or six, so I took all those guys out. They're not really right-handed centermen that regularly take face-offs. So there's about roughly 30-some. Now, of those right-handed centermen, Dan, that yep. are quote-unquote available, whether it's free agency or trade, there are six. <laughs> I'm sorry, what? Six. And it, we, we include free agents. And the top of the list is a guy by the name of Luke Lendenning, who's like 36 oh years old. Or 37 years Luke old. And, Luke Lendenning is basically uh, 2023 Jay Beagle, Yeah, you know? Yeah, pretty much. Plays a lot of defense. Yeah, now you He's can't pay him. He's basically a guy you plug in as your fourth line center, and and he eats your penalty kill minutes. Yeah, you can't pay him, right? No. And you know we we you know Bick was on last week, Dan, and one of the things that he kind of dug up too was right-handed centermen who win faceoffs on the PK that have won on the PK over the past like four years, and includes guys like Jay Beagle. There's like 32 mm-hmm. of them too, but actually active <laughs> ones there are less. There are fewer than 20. There's about 20 some. Well, and. 
when when you listen to that, you hear how hard it is to, or it gets put into context how difficult and why it's so difficult for the Canucks to find that player, uh, to find that uh, successor to Jay Beagle or Brandon Sutter. Right. <laughs> right. And they just haven't been able to find it. Um, right shot centerman almost like they don't exist really. There's like, uh, there's enough for one per team essentially. Yes. And then a lot of those guys are like number four. And a lot of these guys on the list play like 10, 11 minutes a game. So you're not talking yeah. about impact right-handed centermen either. A lot of them. And impact right-handed centermen. Yeah. There, there's like so few, you know, there's like 30 in the league again that have scored more than 40 points this year uh, that play right shot center. And even all those guys wouldn't be, you know, always playing center with a bullet type of thing. It's just how we're able to sort of navigate that. Well, that's why Curtis Lazar was still worth a fourth round pick. He struggled in Vancouver. He didn't play well, wasn't a good fit. We knew all these things, right? But he's a righty center that ha- that has won 51.5% of his faceoffs. So that's why the Canucks still got a fourth round pick for a player that, that has yeah. two more years on his contract, even though it's only a million bucks or whatever. But that's why he had value. That's why Lane Peterson had value when the Canucks acquired him and he was snapped up off waivers by Columbus, you know? And it's not even huge, his... but it shows you that. Yeah. And, you know, even Curtis Lazar, like as much as, you know, we talk about his PK, not good on the penalty kill if you watch him here exactly. in, in Vancouver. So very flawed um, players. So, that, I mean, you start, you, if you go through the list and really narrow down to effective two-way centers, there are very few of them. So, I mean, to me, it comes down to those three positions. And I think you could make an argument that a good two-way right-handed centerman might be number two on the list behind right-handed defensemen. Uh, right now, Vegas has two of those players. You know, yeah. they've got Jack Eichel and Nick Waugh, you know, as two guys that both had over 30 points this year and are right shot centermen. Yeah. It helps a ton. And also to have guys that can play on the PK. You know, one guy that is on this list was Travis Boyd, you yeah. know, who the Canucks basically picked up off waivers from the Leafs and then discarded shortly thereafter in that North Division season. And he's actually been fairly decent for Arizona, but they're playing him a ton. Yeah. You know, so it's uh, that just really highlights the level of scarcity at that position. No, it really does. Goal scorers and elite goalies. Is that where we're going next? Yeah, I think so. Like elite goal scorers. I mean, the goal scoring's gone up and gone up in a huge way, right? So I, I don't even want to include thirty goal scorers. Like to me, the elite goal scorer is a guy that we look at now and say, hey, regularly they're at thirty plus, and they usually hit forty. So the Pasternak's, right? Austin Matthews types, right? You know, uh, Alex Ovechkin types. You know, McKinnon. That that level of goal scorer that we talk about, right? That's super rare. But we're, again, we're, we're dismissing the superstar. Because, of course, that's obviously the most rare thing to find is a superstar yes. player at any position, right? But I'd say that goal scorers have moved down the list because goal scoring has gone up. And there, there are a lot of players in the league that can give you 20 goals, give you 30 goals, you know? And when there are a lot of those players available, well, it means the value of it also d- diminishes to some degree. That's why we look at it and say, well, Besser you know, scores 20 on some goals every year. How come nobody wants to touch him in his contract? And it's like, well it's not as valuable as, as you think anymore. Cause you can always find a guy who gives you 15, 20 goals maybe. And you pay, you know, half the price for that. Especially five on five goal scorers, guys that can do it consistently yeah. at even strength. Posternock is there. Uh, Austin Matthews has probably been the most consistent five on five goal scorer mm-hmm. over the last number of years. Uh, Braden point. Again, we're talking about the top, top guys in the league. But Carter Verhage has started to find himself in that conversation. Um, 
five on is, five goal scorer more valuable or an elite goalie essentially? I would say the five on five goal scorer because I, I don't want to say goalies don't matter because they obviously do, mm-hmm. and you're always going to need good goaltending, right? But you know. To, to use the Canucks new front office, it's not really new anymore, but the Canucks front office as an example, when they said last year at the end of last season, you know, we need to build a team that's not so reliant on its goaltender. That's how every team in the league is thinking now. It's like, yeah, you want an elite goaltender, but you know, the pathway to actually building a Stanley cup contender is building a team that doesn't have to rely on a guy to stand on his head. Well, I mean, you don't want your, you don't yeah. necessarily want your goalie to, to be the cons. Look, if your goalie is the Conn Smythe winner, it probably means you won the cup. So you're not, you're not really quibbling with it. No. But it's just an unlikely scenario to happen where your goalie is your absolute, with a bullet, best player on the ice, night in, night out, and you are able to get the 16 wins to get you through the playoffs and let you hoist the Stanley Cup. Yeah. So I'm taking the goal score. Yeah, I think generally speaking, that's how teams will build it out as well. I'd say, though, if you have a goalie, it's great to have. I think if you mm-hmm. have one, the value to you is massive. The, the problem is they're so hard to, number one, acquire and get right. We have this yes. discussion with Kevin Woodley all the time because it's not just about a goalie being good. It's about the goalie fitting with how you play in your, and your roster. You can have one. That, like and, and how many goalies are there that are like, hey, system proof, like what, a handful? And, I, and yep. that's like the same thing as talking about who are the five best, you know, skaters in the NHL. And you're like McDavid, McCarr, and Matthews and, you know, McKinnon. It's like, okay, that, that's the elite group, of course. You yeah, get we're away talking from, about like the Russian five, yeah. right? You know, and, and Connor Hellebuck. Yeah, you get, yeah, you get, you get through that list essentially. And it's like, you know, there's a huge drop off and those players have to fit your system. Like look at Bobrovsky, for instance, he's having a great run, but we're all kind of waiting for it to like, you know, has, is, is a jig up now? Like, is it yeah. over now? And everyone, and, and nobody in their right mind thinks keeping him for next year at 10 million makes sense. Everyone thinks you have to move him if you can. And this is your chance to do it essentially, because it just doesn't make sense for you to pay that much for your goaltending for a guy you can't really rely on year in and year out. And it's so hard to get that deal right, especially if the guy doesn't fit your system and your schemes. But if you have the guy that does, like Demko has in Vancouver, you're probably not going to get the value in trade to make that deal that makes sense for you. Yeah, and what, it's great when you have it, but it's also you you only want to pay a certain amount of money for it too. Yeah, like right now, if Vancouver put Quinn Hughes on the trade market, well, I mean that may be a bad example. Let, let's say they put Philip Hironik on the trade market and they put mm-hmm. Thatcher Demko on the trade market. Who gets more inquiries and gets more value in uh, return? Philip Hironik, probably right. And yep. I'd say Demko's a better player because he's proven that he can play at a higher level the last little bit than, than Hironik has. He's had one really good year, and he's a good player, of course. But I think you look at it and say when Demko's on his game, he's one of the best goalies. Like he's, he's a huge impact player. He's, he's worth a lot of wins to your roster, probably greater than Hironik. But I think I agree with you. You're probably getting far better offers for Hironik than you would for Thatcher Demko. It's, it's, a, it's a reality of the NHL where... Yes, every team would love to have that goalie, but they know that in the end, the other positions are harder to come by. Yeah. It's, you know, the right shot defenseman, the centerman, and those are the things that can actually affect the gameplay on the ice to a point where you rely less on your goaltender. And I think that's ultimately where you want to be. You know, you could talk all you want about fixing your team by going and adding a goalie. Well, does it always work that way? 
you know, when Minnesota went and traded for Marc-Andre Fleury, did it get him any further than it did in the past? How many teams have gone and recycled through or gone and gone after the big time goaltender? And yeah. it's not actually made that big of a difference to their roster because at the end of the day, it's your roster that matters more than that one goalie. If your roster can't get you there, then the goalie's not going to take you too much further. No, you're absolutely right. And I, I think, the problem is, as much as it ranks number, say, four and five, I know we're going to break here in a second, it ranks like last on the list. It doesn't mean it's devalued. And the problem I see with team building in teams like Toronto, they get it wrong. They Just because it's number, it's low on the priority list doesn't mean you should devalue it because it's last. And you can't yeah. have below average goaltending and, and expect that to be good enough when you get to the regulars. You can't outsmart the goaltending position is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, You still have to value it, even though it may not be as valuable as other positions. That's fair. And, and the thing about, like, this is why it's hard with goaltending, because it's the one position that can win you a game most often. But still hard to uh, to really quantify. Uh, Dan Richo, Satyar Shah. All right, coming up, Scott Billick is going to join us. His take on what happens with Connor Hellebuck. That's next on Canuck Central. Get smarter when you listen to Hockey Talk, the Hockey PDO cast with Dmitry Filipovich. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Canuck Central in the Kintec studio. 650-650. Matty G on Berard saying the ideal defensive defenseman, a guy like Ham Hughes, rarely made mistakes, 20 to 25 points, could move and hit. Now Dan Ham Hughes, a tough, tough player to find. That's why he was uh, so valuable to the Vancouver Canucks in free agency and had uh, such a long career. <laughs> But also mm-hmm. very difficult to find players like that, as we mentioned in the first segment. Also hard to find uh, big-time centermen, uh, but one could be available on the trade market with Pierre-Luc Dubois. We find out yesterday from Pierre Lebrun that Dubois' camp would like to have a trade settled this summer, Sat. Uh, just like, uh, well, similar to the Matthew Kachuk deal from last year, essentially informed the Calgary Flames, I'm not going to resign. Here's a bunch of teams I'd like to be traded to. Figure it out. Yes. Uh, Pierre-Luc Dubois seems to be going in a similar direction. It, it certainly seems that way, right? And which I may think makes it super fascinating about ultimately where he lands and what Winnipeg does. Because it just doesn't make any sense for Winnipeg unless they are able to convince him to stay to keep him. You, you have to maximize the deal. But how many of those teams that he wants to go to are willing to push to go and acquire him. And it, does he truly have his heart set on the one team he wants to go to? And that's Montreal. Well, if you're Montreal, how do you play this? You know, you don't want to give up too much to get the player. If you believe in your heart, you could get that player in free agency for absolutely nothing. You know, that could be a very interesting factor in the mm-hmm. Pierre-Luc Dubois trade sweepstakes, because it doesn't seem like he really wants to go anywhere else and that is tough for Winnipeg to handle yeah and as far as Montreal is concerned like what I think the question for them is who else has a desire to make this happen and what's the type of offer we have to beat and I think if you're Montreal you just wait it out you kind of wait it out and you see okay like what type of trade market develops and if they're kind of in talks at least and they're always kind of like hey circle back to us we'll you know get back to us and and we'll talk here and, and see what we can do 
Because the only time you would actually go and make the trade is if there's a team that you truly believe he would sign with if he gets traded to. Yeah. Right? Otherwise, like, why don't you just wait it out and he becomes a free agent and you'll, you'll, you'll just get him as a free agent? You know, you have to be sure about, about that, right? Well, if you're a contender, let's say you are, I don't know, uh, Columbus would not trade for Pierre-Luc Dubois, so... <laughs> they can't use him to push to the playoffs and they'd probably want that type of player to resign there. But let's say you're the Colorado avalanche. You have a hole at second line center. You know, Gabriel Landeskog is going to be out for the entirety of the upcoming season. Mm-hmm. Do you push any of your future assets into the middle of the table to acquire Pierre-Luc Dubois, knowing that it would be, Essentially a one-year rental. I mean, is that the type of move a contender should be or could be willing to make? Yeah, I mean, as long as it's a rental price. What's a rental price for one of the top players available in the market? First-round pick and a decent prospect. Yeah. It's still the three-piece deal, right? essentially. Just maybe not as nice. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) You're not getting the top prospect from an organization. And, and, you know, truth be told, has Pierre-Luc Dubois played well enough to even command that type of return? Like a a a king's. He scored quite a bit this year. He did, but I mean, he hasn't yep. like fulfilled. Like if we're talking about a player who we're projecting to, you know, he thinks he's the number one center. Has he played at that capability? No. So like, is are we I, talking about you know the problem with Dubois? It's like he he raises his game in certain moments. No, I I'm actually I'm a huge fan of his game. Don't get me wrong. Like you know I'm yeah you when know, he's I'm, on his game. Yeah, and and I think I think situations and all that will play a part into it and I think he is better than he gets credit for, but he, there are more, very a lot of moments where he's kind of switched off. You saw it. I mean, we saw it up close cuz you know Winnipeg plays in Vancouver a couple times a year and we get to see him a bit and it's like there are games where he just kind of he's just there. Not doing much, yeah. he's just there, you know. And <laughs> he's I think the Alexei Kovalev. Yeah, it's a bit of an issue at times. But so has he done enough to to be a guy that you look at and say, not only are we trading for him, but we think he's a number one franchise center that we're paying nine plus million to? You know, like he hasn't had the bow. Like, you know, is he getting more than Bo, for instance? I can't believe I'm saying this, but is he getting more than Bo? Eight and a half <laughs> times eight? Has he played well enough to get that? I mean, you know, say what you want about Bo, but he had almost 40 goals this year. You know, well, if he goes to Montreal, I can't see a world where he's getting that much more than Nick Suzuki. No, and I think right? the, yeah, I think the offer. I mean, I think the best. So the, the the range is in the eight million dollar category. Yeah, I think the best they can hope for in a trade return is probably slightly less than what Canucks got for Bo. Yeah, you know, because if unless he has a type of year, if they hold on to him to the deadline, you know, and then they make the trade then, which could juice the value. If he has a big year, then you can get a bit more. But that's what we're talking about here, right? So that's what Montreal has to beat out. They have to offer a first round pick. They can't trade their own. I don't think. Do they mm-hmm. trade a future pick of their own, which could be valuable, and then you have to give up a prospect? Are they willing to do that for Pierre-Luc Dubois? I, if you're Montreal and you want to make a considerate push for the playoffs as early as this year, then yeah, you go and do it. Better to do it now than a year from now. Like if you don't, unless you don't see yourself as a team that truly wants to get Pierre-Luc Dubois then maybe you don't do it. Yeah, you can wait a year, but Pierre-Luc Dubois might get traded somewhere else. And all of a sudden, he likes that place and 
has different thoughts about maybe wanting to go to Montreal as desperately as we have it seem in this moment right now. Like there's there's a whole world of possibilities that could play out if Pierre-Luc Dubois goes somewhere other than Montreal for this season. Things can change. Things can always change. You can go somewhere yes. it works out really well and, and it's perfect. But I think that's the question for a team that's going to you know jump to get him. I don't think they're willing to give more than a first round pick and you know maybe a prospect or whatever and is Montreal can Montreal do that and I think that's kind of the issue there for them but I think Winnipeg is a team that very much kind of controls the trade market this year in many ways they have so many guys that they're willing to trade you know and so many guys that are open to moving and players at different positions like I think they're high on the list I think the Sabres are going to be a high on the list and I think the Blues are a team that's going to be very high on the list of being very desperate and motivated to go out and make some trades. And they have players are willing to move off of. And I think- well, we've already seen the Blue Jackets. You yeah. know, they, they look like a desperate team. And yeah. they already made one big splash mm-hmm. this offseason with the Provorov trade earlier this week. I, I'm curious, like... And the funny so thing Winnipeg. is for them, like they need a center like Pierre Luc Dubois, but he never come back, yeah. right? Like that's kind of what they need. <laughs> uh, maybe JT Miller? 23 days till his no trade clause kicks in. So, okay, um, you know what? Hey, I'll, I'll give you something on that. I mean, we, we've spoken about that a lot, like the whole JT Miller stuff. And, you know, we wondered last year. Every indication yep. I've gotten so far kind of since then has kind of been like, that's not the direction they're looking to go to. I think what they're mm-hmm. looking to get is a guy slightly younger. I think they're trying to get a high-end center. They're willing to give up a lot, but probably a guy in that 24, 25 age range. That kind of seems to be what they're looking for. Maybe 26, 27, but kind of in that range. The Canucks. No, Columbus. Columbus. In terms of looking for that next center, I think JT might just be a little old for what they're looking for. That would make sense. At the same time, you know, a team like Columbus, you know, has a hard time attracting players. Uh, You know, Johnny Gaudreau aside, there's players. Columbus is almost Winnipeg vibes where players just find their way out of Columbus more often than finding their way into Columbus. But it's a tricky situation. Are you able to find that player in trade and be able to keep them long-term? Like even Provorov, you know, let's say he does turn his career around and he finds, uh, you know, the game that got him a massive contract earlier in his career in Philadelphia. Does he want to re-sign in Columbus a couple of years from now? That's an interesting one. For them, they absolutely need a top center. Like, yeah, they're probably going to draft Leo Carlson here in a few weeks, but does that match with their timeline of clearly wanting to push and get towards the playoffs again in the not-so-distant future? I think they're they're trying to match a few timelines at once here, the Columbus Blue Jackets are, and that's not always an easy thing to do. But they're a desperate team in the trade market for this summer, for this offseason. You mentioned the Winnipeg Jets. Obviously, it's not just desperation. It's also necessity. It's also their players wanting out. It's uh, that team has severely underachieved over the last couple of years under this core. So they're looking at making changes. They've got Shifley on the board. They've got Blake Wheeler who wants out. They've got Connor Hellebuck who's an unrestricted free agent and could want out. Even guys on the back end like Dylan DeMello and Brendan Dillon. What do you do with them? as pending unrestricted free agents. It's almost like if you're Winnipeg, I get they're not a rebuild team, but what world are you living in that you can say with this situation, like how do you find a pathway that doesn't say we're at least taking a quick step back here? No, 
Yeah, but I don't necessarily think, given their situation, that they have to take a huge step back if they make some trades and right. they're getting players back in return. You know? Like, I, th- I think yep. something that we don't talk about enough, because we, we're in the age of, hey, can you just get draft capital and prospect capital back in return in every trade, is, especially with the cap being as flat as it is, is to make trades for money in and money out. And if you're talking about the higher caliber players, money in and money out, I, I wonder about some some fun trades that might happen this offseason, where we're talking about some of these teams, whether they're the Blue, the blue Jackets, or sorry, the Blues or the Winnipeg Jets, and they're looking at it and saying, well... We have a couple of guys that might be expiring, but hey, might be good fits here. We have guys under contract. Is there a fit we can find here? You know what I mean? Like, hypothetically speaking, would would Winnipeg look at taking on a Braden Shen for Mark Shifley? Mm-hmm. You know, they look at that and say, hey, you know, that's a guy maybe a bit older, but he's locked in. He's going to be here. Good player, yada, yada. You know, from, from I, Saskatchewan. I, uh, th- those are the types of trades, like, the hockey deal that we would love to see more of the, you know, Kachuk for Uyghur and Jonathan Huberdo that we saw last year. It may be a necessity because of the flat cap. I just, I don't know if you can find three of those if you're, if you're Winnipeg, right? Cause you got to do it with Shifley and you've got to do it with Pierre-Luc Dubois and potentially with Connor Hellebuck. I wonder if teams take a page out of Jim Rutherford and Patrick Alvin's book and say, you know what? Let's make this trade. We know we got to move Bo Horvat. We'll get this asset and then we'll find something to move it for that can help us in a more immediate term. It's just, you know, all of these things work great in NHL 23. It's just, are, are you able to move all these puzzle pieces around in one off season? And I find that, to be a very difficult equation if you are Kevin Cheveldayoff in the Winnipeg Jets. Yeah, and I mean, you know, that's just on the Winnipeg side, and I think there are a number of other teams, too, that are really... Why do you think St. Louis is so desperate? I'm just curious on that. Well, because they have a lot of assets, and they want to get better. Like, the the Blues don't want to rebuild. They don't want to rebuild at all. Like, even... They were in on Chikrin. They were even in on Meyer slightly this past year. What does that tell you? They yeah. traded all these guys and got all these picks, but they're in on players that were, you know, slated to get big contracts and players that are big time contributors, you know, and they're still looking to contend. I mean, they have too many guys that are long term to be able to get locked in there. Yeah. They still have Shen on long term. Obviously, they've got a ton of money tied up on the back end with guys like Justin Falk, Tori Krug, Colton Pareko, all on long term deals. Even Nick Letty, who was signed at four million per last year. That's an expensive deal. They got the two extra first-round picks, right? They got the one from the Dallas Stars. They got the other from the Toronto Maple Leafs. So, uh, and, and the Stars one came in the Tarasenko deal that saw Tarasenko go to New York Rangers, but they got the Dallas Stars first-round pick in that trade. It's, when you get those first-rounders, they become huge assets, and tradable assets to get you and net you something. But you have to do it by the time the draft rolls around or you'd prefer it to do it by the time the draft rolls around. So I could see you're, you're right on the blues. Like they don't want to take a huge step back. They were like, Hey, we find ourselves in this position. Let's sell it this deadline and we'll try and reset and go to the off season with some extra assets in hand and get this team better for next year. Um, we obviously know the Canucks, are pretty desperate as far as desperate teams go. Um, the Sabres are a team much like the Ottawa senators, I guess last year that want to 
push forward and make their play to get into the playoffs. Yeah, and they have a lot of money too. So mm-hmm. I mean, they're a team that has a lot of asset capital. I mean, they just gave away Josh Bloom, who's a decent prospect for Vancouver all of a sudden because they have too many guys. They can't fit them in. And, you know, <laughs> they're honestly at a point where they have too many prospects. They don't have room for them at the AHL and EC, AHL level. They're like, how yeah. many of these guys can we truly, you know, develop and, and, and sink our time into and making into players? Yep, and you want to move them. You want to move them before their their value starts to dip. Precisely, and you know you're going to have to make some tough choices, and they've made some tough choices uh, on, on some players already, and they're willing to do that even more. And I think that makes them not only a very interesting team, but a team that could quietly really control the trade market as well this year. Because if they're willing to on key players outbid other teams, and they have the wherewithal, they're going to be very very difficult to deal with. There is some early reports out of Buffalo that Rasmus Dahlin. Uh, is going to sign a 10 or sorry an 8 year 80 million dollar contract so that would be a 10 million dollar average annual value he can't uh, actually sign it until July 1st when he is eligible but um there are some reports out of Buffalo that say it is about as good as done and you know what it it tracks right like that's after the season he had that's probably the range of price it's going to cost to get him on a long-term deal, and I could see that being the number. Now, with a player like Darlene, um, they've pretty much, like once they do that, Buffalo's almost set up entirely. And I guess, you know, do you think, do we believe Darlene to be that level of an impact player that he is worth one of those ever so rare double digit average annual value contracts. Absolutely. I mean, that's what the going rate is for these top end guys and you know, I, I do feel like I, I still think guys like Miro Heiskanen are better. Like I like Miro Heiskanen better as a player and he's yeah. not going to make as much money as Rasmus Dahlin is, so I think you can say he is getting paid more and look at even Kale McCarr's contract, but he signed a bridge deal, a 3-year deal, then he signed this deal and he's buying more UFA years, so it becomes a bit different in terms of comparisons to those players in the contracts they have signed, so you have to be fair to that. But I think the type of impact he can have at times this year, he looked like Kale McCarr. Bigger. Mm-hmm. He's 6-3. You know, and he's not as good as Kale McCarr, I'm not saying that, but he's the only other defenseman in the league right now that can do the things Kale McCarr can do at times. You know, impact as dynamic game. offensively. Yeah, with the power skating and, and, and taking over a game and being able to really, you know, sink your claws into it and really be in control. I mean, you can say Adam Fox too, but he doesn't have the same burst and the same explosiveness that a player like Kale McCarr has. You can still say he's better, of course. I'm not saying he's a better player than, yep. you know, than, than, than Adam Fox, for instance. But in terms of the impact he can make with his skating and overall uh, ability... Like that's a level he can reach when he's at his best. He's kind of like so Nathan few... Kinnan compared to McDavid yeah. almost. You know when he you're not you know you know he's not McDavid, but he's kind of <laughs> like at times he kind of can do the same thing. You know. Well, I I've said this before on post games or whenever we've done the show when McKinnon comes to town, he feel like when you watch him live, he is almost scarier than McDavid. Yeah, he's just so the way explosive. that he gallops on the ice, the way that he's so explosive with his skating stride. You're like, man, this guy's going to score a goal every time he touches the puck. Yes. That's, that's the way that it feels at, when you're watching it. And, and Darlene can have that similar vibe. I mean, that first game of the season, God, it feels so long ago now, but you know, jerseys were thrown on the ice and Rasmus Darlene was having a blast yeah. taking advantage of the Canucks who just couldn't do anything. <laughs> yeah. Right. To, to, to do anything to stop him. And, 
there's just so few players that can take guys on one on one as much as guys like Makar and and Darlene do from the back end. It's kind of like and have the confidence to do it like when they're walking the blue line and all these mm-hmm. different types of things. It's kind of like juiced up young Eric Carlson. Like remember when we watched Eric yeah. Carlson in his twenties and he was you know winning you know Norris trophies and he was maybe the best player in the, in the league and he was explosive, right? But Unicorn. These, yeah, but these guys are like they have more power behind it. You know, yeah. like as explosive as Carlson was, he wasn't quite as powerful as Makar is. Not quite as powerful when Darlene gets going. It's it's just mm-hmm. like a, another level. You know what I mean? It's like, you know, it's like getting the nitrous Carlson oxide. Carlson was more smooth <laughs> than he was powerful. Yeah. yeah, he was. And he had a lot of bursts and he was, you know, fancy. But art, art, very artistic too. And he played hard. I'm not taking anything away from it. But these guys just have that extra power behind it too. Some, some added horsepower to how they play. And it's kind of the new age athlete, you know, more dynamic, more powerful and they're able to impact the game even physically to that degree. I mean, you just can't get in their way. Like when Rasmus Dahlin's coming with a full head of steam, there's nothing you can do. Uh, this might be me, Reach, taking a bit of a reach here, but um, is is there anything to read into this potential Dahlin extension that could tell us about what a Pedersen extension might look like? Yeah, he's not signing for under $10 million, I'll tell you that much, right? <laughs> okay, so if we, we if we can glean anything from this, it is guaranteed you can bet your life on it. Elias Pettersson is signing a double-digit contract if he yeah. signs a long-term deal with the Canucks. Yeah, year. every time we have this discussion, you know, things come up on the text inbox and people even tweeting and saying, hey, I mean, Pettersson getting 10, 11? No, I mean, he should be getting 9, 9.5. And, and I'm like, hey, I mean, fair enough in terms of you want to make other comparisons and whatever. But I'm like, as much as you may want that and think that's fair, that's not reality. And as good as Rasmus Dahlin is, and Pedersen had, you know, one big year, but he had also like a couple really good years before that too. And then, you know, the dip in the North division year and then the year before when he got injured, but still he was getting pretty gaudy totals, still hitting, you know, 30 goals and doing all these things. So he has more of a track record too. And I know defense and center are different, but the bar was always the Jack Eichel contract. And Pedersen has far exceeded anything Jack Eichel did when he got his contract. So you can take it to the bank Elias Pettersson signing for more than $10 million per should he sign an extension with the Canucks this summer. It's Dan Richo and Satyar Shah. When we come back, Harmon Dial will join us from The Athletic. That's next on Canucks Central. Canuck Central in the Kintec studio. It's Dan Richo and Satyar Shah. It's uh, starting to get to the busy time of the offseason, but the offseason hasn't yet officially begun because there are still games to be played in the Stanley Cup final. Although I've written off the Florida Panthers already about uh, a thousand times. Uh, they still have a chance to uh, get back in the series. I shouldn't, you know, I shouldn't do that, Sat, you know. Like, what? what's the old saying, the old cliche, a uh, series hasn't been decided until a home team loses? Yes, you're saying. Well, the home saying, team hasn't lost yet in the Stanley no, Cup. No, it hasn't final. happened yet. We'll see what happens tonight. We'll see. Game game three, can they turn it around? Uh, unlikely. Let's bring in our... Uh... <laughs> Let's bring in our next guest. It is Harmon Dial of The Athletic joining us here on Canucks Central. Uh, have you written off the Florida Panthers yet, uh, Harm? Not yet. I mean, if they came back from Boston after having a historical regular season, 3-1 deficit, and, and were able to sort of take them down. 
I mean, I'm not going to count them out this early. Kind of like you said, until they lose one at uh, at at home here at home here. But I mean, no doubt that you look at the series and and it definitely hasn't gone Florida's way. I mean, the biggest concern you probably have is how are you going to keep preventing goals given the state of not only the back end is finally starting to look shaky again, obviously with Rad Kagudis. Um, getting hurt and getting hurt in game two, and some of the other depth of defensemen getting exposed, but also Sergey Bobrovsky, who'd been carrying them for stretches in this postseason, looking you know not great. I, I think there are there are um, you know major concerns for Florida here, but I'm not going to write them off yet. Yeah, I mean, I think the biggest question with Florida just comes down to goaltending and whether, you know, Bobrovsky can figure it out or not. But one thing I will say about the way Florida plays, it seems like they're almost growing stronger at times and generating quality scoring chances. Is that maybe the most impressive thing about um, Florida this year? And, and you know, their, their scoring chance differential is solid all season. But the fact that at, at very critical times they're able to generate offense... No doubt. I mean, they, they were, they've been a dominant offensive team, not only in the regular season, through the playoffs. I mean, even in these first two games, I think Aiden Hill's excellence between the pipes has sort of masked how, like, for example, there were a lot of moments in game two where the Panthers are only down, let's say a goal or two. And let's say they'd get a power play opportunity and Florida would get robbed right on the doorstep by Hill, Vegas counterattacks and they score, right? Like, and so the score at the end of the game looks like a blowout, and it is a blowout, but there were, there were key moments where, you know, because of the way that Florida was attacking, if they had just gotten a bounce here or there, here or there finished a little bit better, that they could have um, actually made it a game. So that's really where, you know, kind of like what you mentioned in terms of the goaltending, like I think the disparity where Bobrovsky hasn't looked good and Hill's been, uh, Hill's been excellent, I think that's made – the series so far look on paper in terms of the in terms of scoreboard um, look a lot worse than it actually is because on the ice in terms of the play sure Vegas has been the better team but I don't think it's been by that substantial um, of a margin. Yeah, and one of the things has been that Florida has just made more mistakes than they had in the previous three rounds. And maybe that's rust with all the time they had off between the Eastern conference final and sweeping away Carolina to, to getting eventually into this series, but they just, they've been more mistake prone. And that was one of the things about Florida through the first three rounds and maybe a lesson for a lot of other teams to look at. (laughs) Don't make mistakes. Try not to at least. And I think the one thing that Paul Maurice has implemented that changed Florida in a significant way is dump and chase more often. And that way you make less mistakes, play a little bit of a safer game. You know, it was that unsafe game that got them crushed by Tampa Bay last year, despite winning the president's trophy. I think, you know, that's is dump and chase hockey becoming more in vogue in the NHL in 2023. It is. And it's not necessarily that dump and chase is safer. It's that what an aggressive forecheck does is it forces your opposition to make more mistakes than you do, right? Like you look at the Florida Toronto series and a big problem for the Leafs was Florida's forecheck was so aggressive with their deep pinching. It actually wasn't really that safe of a style at all, but the way that they were applying pressure, they were forcing Toronto's defensemen who looked slow into making critical mistakes and critical turnovers. And, you know, we saw a lot of, you know, even, even from Toronto, some of their top forwards, you know, turnovers that, that cost them dearly. And, and I think for, for Florida, that's, that's a key, right? Is they can look at their own game and go, yeah, okay, guys, you got to manage the puck better. 
um, and all of those things. But you've also got, got to get back to ensuring that your forecheck is forcing Vegas into making mistakes, which that's, you know, that can be hard to do because Vegas's uh, defense is, um, is so solid in, in all respects. They're really good defensively. They move the puck. They handle pressure well. They have close, uh, close five-man support. And, and that's where even with the way that Vegas sort of, even under Cassidy, like that's part of their, their, the way that they break pucks out and stuff too is they're not too concerned with, you know, if you watch them a lot on breakouts, they're not a team that tries to, let's say, if a winger has the puck along the walls, if there's not, if there isn't a safe play into the middle, they're, they're not going to force that play. They'd rather just chip it up the ice, play that north-south style, and 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 that's where Vegas has a lot of speed to be able to hunt those loose pucks down and advance the puck that way. And so, definitely, I would agree with the overall trend, though, that when you look at some of the teams that made it into you know the final four, whether you look at Florida, whether you look at Vegas. Uh, whether you look at, um, you know, Carolina, obviously, like these are teams that all play that, like play that style of we have fast, tenacious skaters up front and we're just going to, you know, kind of uh, sort of pump pucks up the ice mm-hmm. and, and win those battles. And that's, you know, it's, it's actually been a validation of, you know, you can see why the, why, you know, the Canucks under Rick Tockett want to, want to sort of play and, and emulate that style is, um, you know, because it's, you know, clearly having a lot of success in these playoffs. I think you're absolutely, I mean, you led right into the, my next question here about, you know, we'll see about the Canucks personnel decisions and their overall plan and execution. But in terms of hiring the right type of coach that follows a right trend, I think they got that right. But the thing you mentioned, which I think is obviously as much as we can sit here and talk about coaching and having the right strategy, which they both nailed both coaches, is the, is the availability of those types of players on your roster to begin with. The Panthers have fast, tenacious skaters. The, the Vegas Golden Knights have fast, tenacious skaters. So we can sit here and talk about what, what Tockett wants to do. The question is, how much more pace and tenacity does the Canucks forward group need to be able to play that effectively next year? Absolutely. And that's where like, you look at Vegas and who's been so effective consistently getting behind the defense, even among you know, their, their, their you know, lines outside of the top line. It's, it's, it's a player like Chandler Stevenson, right? And um, you know, Florida has a bunch of those guys and the Canucks have, you know, up front, they're not a fast team. Right. And, and that's where, you know, you can understand why it was a priority for them last, uh, last summer to sign, go out and sign a guy like Ilya Mikheyev, who, who fits that type of, you know, would excel in that type of, um, you know, system. And that, that's where, you know, Talkett has spoken so much about wall, wall guys and, and guys who can win battles along the boards. And I think that's where, you know, it's, it's not easy. Like it's a multi-year process, but um, you know, that, that, that definitely is an area where the Canucks, you know, probably don't have enough speed right now to execute it to that level of uh, that level of proficiency. But ultimately you can also look at it the other way and go like, that, that's the way that they're trying to play in or talk it. I feel like is the only, is one of the only ways they should be trying to play because you, because the alternative of, let's say if you want to be a, te- want to be a team that, um, that breaks the puck out with uh, with control and is trying to make plays to the neutral zone. Like I just don't think the Canucks have the right personnel in terms of smart decision making and skill and playmaking to do that either. Right? Like you don't have a mobile back end that is particularly great besides Quinn Hughes and then obviously Philip Pronick at uh, at moving the puck out. Um, it's not like you have a lot of um, a lot of smart decision makers in your top nine in terms of managing risk. Right? We saw how many problems the Canucks had with turnovers uh, at the offensive blue line at the start of this past season. So um, 
you know, the, the style that they're trying to play and they're talking, I think is closer to what they should be able to successfully implement. I mean, it's pretty similar to the way that they're also playing under Travis Green. Um, but, you know, there are still shortcomings in, in the personnel in, in terms of executing it at a really, really high-end level. Does that make you think there could be more movement from the Canucks than maybe their tight cap situation suggests? Maybe, but I'll be honest, because of their cap situation, I'm going in with modest expectations. And um, until they create that room, I, I just it, it's hard for us to talk about hypothetical, let's say, free agent signings or hypothetical trades, yeah. uh, hypothetical trades when it's like, well, they can't, they, they literally can't afford anybody, right? And that's where, like, you know, even I'm at the Combine this week in, in Buffalo and just running into, you know, teams and, and agents. It's like everybody knows the Canucks are right up against the cap, right? Yeah. And the most interesting question that, you know, people ask me as, as, a, uh, as a Canucks reporter isn't, oh, what do you think the Canucks are going to do this offseason? They're asking about the pick, right? Like, oh, who do you think they're going to take or whatever? Because they know that that's probably the most intriguing part of the Canucks' offseason is what they do what they do with the draft. And, um, you know, and, and I do think that from the Canucks' standpoint, it's going to be important for them to move uh, move money out as, you know, as soon as they can in relation to, you know, by, you know, day one or day two of the draft at the latest because mm-hmm. – until they do that, they can't really do, you know, a whole lot else. Well, and I think, you know, uh, we've, we've spoken about this before about, you know, guys that may have more value at the deadline, guys that are expiring, like Bavillier. And as much as Bavillier long-term may not make sense because of the money he might command and the role he plays, he's more in line with the type of player they would rather have as opposed to, you know, the Garland type. So I think they're going to exhaust every possibility to move the Garland type. But I wonder if they get to a position where they just have to pull the trigger on somebody they can move. But... The other side of it, too, is, and maybe the smaller portion of it, which we haven't seen, you know, quite work out yet, although you can look at Ethan Bear and say, you know, he was a great acquisition. Can they find a Chandler Stevenson for somebody else, you know, in terms of that third line center? Like, is there a trade you can make at least for a a cheaper guy that can hit here up front? And then, you know, maybe you do something to to wiggle out enough cap space to, to maybe get a defenseman or something. Yeah, and and that's what we've spoken a lot about, even on the even on the free agent market, right? It's it's trying to find those um those th- those next sort of um you know bargain options. And, and Florida, like look look at you know obviously it was, it was a different market in 2020 when they found a bunch of these guys, um but Florida did did that to a T in terms of finding these um you know forwards and, and even defensemen in the case of you know a guy like Gustav Forsling, um overlooked guys and, and just you know, re- rebuilding their value. I mean, Carter Verhage, who's now 40 goal scorer, um, was a discard from Tampa just because Tampa had so much talent. And, you know, immediately he, he hits as a, as a top six forward. And look, it's rare to be able to find a, a talent like Verhage. Um, but the Canucks don't need that, like, level of, a, of an elite contributor. They just need somebody who can, you know, hopefully help stabilize the bottom six, help um, eat, eat, some, uh, eat some defensive uh, matchups and... Um, and, and honestly, like it, like if anything, when I think about, it, it may not actually be the worst thing. Actually, now that I've been thinking about it, that they don't have a lot of cap space to, to spend. And the reason I say that is because it might prevent them from making reckless decisions in what's going to be an inflated free agent market, right? Like this, the problem with the Canucks has been that whenever they have, you know, had some level of cap flexibility they've immediately spent it on, you know, the type of contract that they end up regretting in two or three years. Right. 
Um, and so, especially in this year's class, like because of how weak it is, um, and 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 teams are still obviously going to have uh, needs. Like you look at a player like Damon Severson, right? Um, good good player, right shot defenseman, but he's going to get overpaid. You look at you, you know an Ivan Barbashev, and that's just going to have a, a trickle down effect on on everybody else. So, um, you know, this is a, this is a typical off season where. You know, if you're the Canucks, you need to show you know some creativity. You need to show some ability, some some uh, ability to chop the bargain bin. And look, it's going to be competitive, right? A lot of teams are, are going to be in a similar boat in terms of not have having a lot of flexibility and trying to explore those options. But that's why when it comes to improving for next season, like a big sort of thing that I've thought about is look, it's going to have to come on the back of internal improvement. Like I don't. You know, you obviously try and do the best that you can this offseason in terms of augmenting your roster, but ultimately making the playoffs next year is going to come on the back of a full season of Veronic. It's going to come, come on the back of Thatcher Demko bouncing back. It's going to ha- it's going to come on the back of um, JT Miller playing the way that he did un- under Rick Tockett for a full season. Like you're going to need those, like those differences in my, uh, those are those are going to make way bigger differences than um, than what you may be potentially able to do, but. Um, I mean, look, if the Canucks are willing to pay a price, like that's the other side of it too, is like, are they willing to pay a price? Because then, then more then they could have some options that open up. But um, at least for me, I'm tempering my expectations for now um, just because of, you know, the history of even looking at last off season and them, um, you know, finding it difficult to uh, move significant uh, cash around. Well, and it, it seems like that's the conclusion everybody's made with, with Brock Besser. Like, yeah, maybe Brock, uh, you know, rescinded his trade request, as we heard at the end of the year, and Pierre Lebrun reiterated this week uh, at The Athletic as well. But when we saw, you know, Cal Peterson get moved by the LA Kings and how much it costs to get rid of that contract for them, you know, a top-end, right-shot D prospect plus another second-rounder can only imagine what it would cost for the Canucks to really move a Brock Besser contract given how, you know, much his value has depreciated in this flat salary cap world. But then there's the question of, you know, Brock still has some bounce-back potential. It's just a matter of what we think that bounce-back potential is for Brock Besser-Harm. Yeah, absolutely. And look, compared to, let's say, Cal Peterson, like, Peterson's was truly an awful Oh, yeah, contract. not even close, yeah. Like, yeah. like that, that's not even, <laughs> that's like, fair. close to Besser, um, in my opinion. So, but you're you're right in the sense that... But in terms of cash you have to move, like, that's that's yeah. the expensive part. Yeah, and, and it's a case of even thinking, like, let's say you are confident in, in a, like... The worst, the worst case scenario would be, you know, if, if you let's say end up, um, you know, shipping a player like Brock out, and um, and he goes, you know, somewhere else and, and bounces back and has a huge year, and let's say you'd paid to move that contract and you ended up spending that cap space on uh, on somebody who didn't have nearly as significant of an impact, right? And that's where a big part of it is. Okay, if you're gonna pay a price to move money, um, and and look, I don't think that you'd have to necessarily pay a lot to to. To, to give him uh to you know get off that contract necessarily it's more the do you want to give him a century away for free type mm-hmm. thing yeah um but if you if you go down that road you better have an idea of what you're going to do with the cap space after it and a, a way to intelligently um use it and not just you know do what the canucks did for a long time under the jim benning regime which was we have cap space but we're not necessarily going to allocate it in the smartest way and, and that's where 
and again, it's in my opinion for this offseason to be successful, you're going to have to sort of think in think in multiple sort of steps and and map a lot of your possibilities out, um, you know, beforehand. Because again, if you're you know, let's say if you're trying to get off of like let's say a Tyler Myers or you're you're paying a small sweetener to get off of Connor Garland, it's like okay, like you want to know what plan B is before you commit to going down uh, down a road like that, especially if that route involves potentially let's say like moving your eleven uh, moving down from your eleven pick to let's say the middle or, or late part of the first round. So um, it's not an easy offseason. Like I don't envy the situation you know the Canucks are are in. Um, and, but for me, I'm just looking at it and going. I would, I would hope that they're not too aggressive in terms of doing things they may end up regretting in order to create cap space. Yeah, and that's the thing. I mean, you don't want to be. It's like you don't want to cut off. You don't want to cut your nose off to spite your face type of situation, right? You want to. You want to make a situation where I'm totally there with you, and we'll see what what they do. But we had a good discussion to start to show off, and we were talking about the the scarcest, the most scarce assets by say player types in the NHL. And Dan and I both agree that the right hand defenseman is the scarcest asset you can find in the National Hockey League. What's number two or number one for you? And and number two and three, because you can look at defensive defensemen, as we saw the price paid for Provorov, despite all his struggles and issues. And then you look at right-handed centermen as well. Like, how do you view the, the most scarce player types by in the league right now? Yeah, I'd say for sure a right shot defenseman is, um, you know, either either number one or two. I think top six centermen is is right up there as well. I mean, look at look at how long Columbus has struggled to find a legit top six center. I mean, you think back to you know them cycling through Max Domi and you know obviously then in the Dubois trade making that bet on Jack Roslevic which hasn't really worked out for them he's been in and out of uh, the rumor, rumor mill uh, you look at the Minnesota Wild right such a well-built team uh, overall but you know their problem is that besides Eric Sinek they, they haven't had a top line center to play with uh, um, Kaprizov right on the top line so top six centers are still exceptionally sort of difficult to to, to find an affordable rate. And, and I mean, like, look, the, the Islanders, what they had to sort of pay Bo Horvat in terms of that contract, right? Like forget the assets, like the assets, you know, were still a premium to, to get Horvat, but then the contract eight and a half by what was it? Seven years. Um, like that's, you know, that's significant. That's not a price I want to pay. Right. And, and that's where, when it comes to those positions, you can understand why there's such a debate, um, when it comes to this idea of like drafting for best player available and, and why teams sometimes end up settling for need um, is because you can kind of look at it and go, all right, if, if these centers and defensemen are so difficult to acquire outside of the draft at a reasonable cost, well, I'll let's, let's draft and develop them internally. So they're, so they're cheap and, and young. Um, even if that's not necessarily the best, you know, the best guy on the board when we're drafting and, um, you can understand that, but on the other hand, uh, other hand, it can also burn you. Like the Canucks have seen it with, uh, you know, taking the levy over Kachuk, and um, that's where you've just, especially when you're drafting high, like top ten to fifteen picks. That's where I feel like you've you've got to be really mindful of just taking the best player available, and then maybe later in the draft, um, you know, outside of that top fifteen range, you can go, all right, like we'll we'll try and target some center, centers and. Um, and defensemen specifically, and and maybe not necessarily be so um, so black and white in terms of targeting best player available. So which uh, which right shot defenseman are the Canucks taking at eleventh overall then? 
Well, I mean, the only <laughs> one that sticks out in terms of a guy that I wonder about is, is Willander, right? Yeah. Um, because Sandy Pelica, with his size and, you know, stylistic makeup, being, being an offensive defenseman who, who isn't very big, um, you know, doesn't strike me as the type of guy that, uh, that the Canucks would necessarily, you know, be that interested in. I, I just actually today had a chance to quickly uh, chat with him, and he said that um, besides the standard, you know, 20-minute you know, um, combine interview that he had, had with Vancouver, like he's not getting dinner with, with the Canucks this mm-hmm. week, uh, you know, which teams will often do this, this combine week in Buffalo is – top top uh you know two three guys that they're especially interested in they might take take the guy out for dinner so that leads me to wonder about um you know will Anders just because he's a great skater he fits the side he's got definitely i think he's six one six two um he's got more two-way potential and that's where you're again gonna have to sort of make that determination uh because this is a player that before you ate before his uh strong u18s performance a lot of people are projecting more in the mid to late first mm-hmm. round, and now he's obviously got a lot of momentum within the top 15 or so. And so now it's a question of, okay, how high do you view his uh, view his ceiling? And um, you know, are, are would you be like how, would you be bypassing a significantly more talented player? Um, you know, if, if you did take him at uh, uh, take him at 11. So this kind of comes back to the, the discussion we were having about, you know, a scarcity and player types because Willander projects to be a good two-way righty defenseman. And if he actually is good defensively as a righty defenseman that can skate well and move the puck, I mean, you're talking about how many players like that exist in the NHL, like 15, 16, 17, that are good, right? That can do those sort of things. So that's what it comes down to. You're right. I mean, there are players that are better and more talented, but if he hits, you would be right on it. I think the big question is, I, I think there's a sense that the, uh, Sandine Palika won't get past the Blues, and we'll see if that's true or not but Ryan Bacher is he a shoo-in to be the first defenseman to go or could we see you know maybe even Willander go higher than expected or, or Shimashev push in like what do you kind of what's the vibe you're getting in terms of the defenseman and how they might get drafted yeah I mean Ryan Bacher's sort of been the consensus not by a lot yeah mind you um you know it, it certainly feels like people feel that by like Arizona's Arizona's a team that you know a lot of people seem to have circled for Ryan Bacher um, at least just in terms of, you know, uh, speculation and, and that sort of thing. But um, beyond him, with Simishev, I don't think so, just because I think the Russian factor is, is going to scare, mm-hmm. um, you know, some, some teams off. Um, I think with, with Sandy and Pelica, again, because of the size, I don't, I don't think that he'll necessarily be the first guy. I, I still lean Reinbacker. I mean, it, w- it wouldn't necessarily shock me if it's somebody else, but um, you know, I, I feel as as of right now, like pr- pretty pretty comfortable that it, that it would be Ryan Backer being the first defenseman uh, off the board. Um, I mean, maybe like now that I think about it, if anything, like Willander, maybe if you know, maybe Willander is this, is this year's uh, most sider in terms yeah. of just being a surprise because he's got the late momentum. Mm-hmm. Um, again, a little bit of I, size I, you know, too, right? He's got the size too, so I'm yeah, I could see him maybe being a sneaky dark horse, but right now. Ryan Backer is, you know, st- still seems to be the consensus top D. Uh, before we let you go, anything else we should know about uh, the happenings at the NHL Draft Combine? Uh, nothing really that exciting happening yet. Um, I think the actual Combine um, is happening on uh, on Saturday. So just got in last night. Um, yeah, not not a whole lot. We've just seen agents and 
exact exact sort of you know chowing down some food so i'll uh, i'll keep you guys posted <laughs> smash w- some buffalo wings for us no doubt F- yeah. final, final one for me here and i know he's not gonna he's not featuring there or anything but is there any buzz around mitch Cobb and what's going on with him yet not not yet right now i think we'll hopefully get a better sense of that over the next uh few days um it, you know what it is like one thing i wonder about mitch Cobb just in general is I think the conversation about him has sort of shifted where I think a lot of there's, there's more discussion like early on, it was about, okay, the contract and um, you know, the geopolitical risk. And, and now there's, there seems to be more sort of discussion about, okay, are there actual holes in his game and you know, how he def- how his defensive game is and you know, the size and, and is there a lack of compete? I almost feel like, this is a case. This is a case where we're looking at a player and we're almost overanalyzing him now. Um, you know, kind of picking his just because there's a tendency of you know when a guy's been in the spotlight for so long and unless and unless he has like a Bedard type impact, sometimes you, you just end up picking his game part too too, too much. And you know, like you know, whereas, whereas you look at a guy like Will Smith, right? Will Smith comes in late riser. Nobody really, nobody really had as much hype for him at the start of the season. And it's like nobody's necessarily picking apart his game the way they would a, way they would a Mitch Cobb right now. And and I almost wonder if teams are trying to are almost you know there are legitimate sort of you know things in Mitch Cobb's game that aren't great. But you know I mean again I go back to the talent that he has the the game breaking potential and I'm almost wondering now if teams are are are, are looking at the contract situation and, and almost then trying to give themselves more reasons not to pick him to, to justify it, if that kind of makes sense. But um, we'll see. I mean, it, it, uh, it's one of the most interesting storylines ahead of the draft. Harm, always appreciate the time. Uh, stay away from Chippewa Street, all right? <laughs> we'll do. Thanks, guys. Uh, there he is, Harmon Dial of The Athletic, joining us uh, from uh, the beautiful Buffalo, New York. Yeah, uh, beautiful, beautiful Buffalo. But that's some good insight, too, about what's going on in the draft. And Tom Willander picking up steam. You know, you heard it here first on Canuck Central some months ago, and now it's like he's kind of gaining some speed, some uh, some steam as the next Maurice Sider, even in terms of not being the next Sider, but in shooting up the draft ranks late. I'm not saying Sat's always right, but... We'll, we'll see. see. We'll when see. Tom Willander is a top 10 pick, uh, <laughs> we'll let the tape of this show and the last couple months of our draft uh, previews tell the story. Because uh, that's been on Tom Willander for uh, a few weeks, months, and uh, now all of a sudden there he is creeping up towards the top 10. I even saw the athletic uh, Corey Promen in his latest mock draft mm-hmm. selected him 11th overall to the Vancouver Canucks. I mean, when you look at what did we talk about? We talked about positional value and player types, a good, a player who projects to be a righty defenseman. That's good. Defensively might be the most scarce asset in the national hockey league. Now that doesn't mean just cause he's good at those things. There aren't other players that are better in overall value because of their talent. It's just so overwhelming. Right. But if they view him like that, that's a top. That's a top ten type of talent, you know, and and that's why you see some teams have him there as an eight or a nine on their list and ten on their list because that's their projection. Righty defenseman that's going to be good as a two way player, and it's just so hard to find those guys. It's Dan Richo and Satyar Shah. We are Canucks Central.